Welcome everyone to another edition of Governed by God, a biblical look at law, civics, and government. My name is Eric Leupold. Thank you for joining me on today's episode. So today, I'm not going to have a passage of the day because we're going to spend a lot of time looking at various passages in discussing theonomy. So just wanted to throw that out there. We're going to continue with the defense of theonomy, this time part two. Last time, we looked at kind of some of the basics of what theonomy is, and we responded to a few points, criticisms, that were made on a Pastor's Talk podcast by Dr. Carl Truman uh, in in an interview that he had with Jonathan Lehman and Pastor Mark Dever. So I covered a few things there, but mostly just responded to their comments. Today I wanted to provide kind of a foundation or basic premise of why I believe in theonomy, what it teaches and and why I believe it. At its core, the idea that theonomy is based on is that Jesus Christ is king over all, over all things, over all people. And we see this in Matthew chapter 28 in the Great Commission, verses 18 through 20 where Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So here we have that all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. He's not just the Lord of heaven, He's the Lord of all. Any authority, if you can think of an authority that's in heaven or or on earth, that belongs to Jesus. All authority. No no exception here. All authority. All right? That's why we can go and make disciples. Because the land, the world, belongs to him. To kind of give a human analogy here, we as citizens of America, of the United States, we cannot just go and make disciples or make new citizens of the United States. We can't do that in other parts of the world, however much we want to try, because we can't do it without conquering. In order to make other places part of us or to disciple them and make them to be like us, we'd have to conquer them. And we have no authority beyond our own borders except by force. We'd have to take that authority from someone else. If we wanted to turn, I don't know, pick a country in Europe or Africa or anywhere else, if we want them to be like us or to become our disciples, if you will, to use that phrase, we'd have to conquer them. Because if they would be unwilling, uh, then we'd have to take it by force. But Jesus already has the authority uh, over all on heaven and on earth. And he doesn't need to take it from anybody because he already has it. This is the important question is how, how did he get it? And how can we be sure that he does have it outside of just that statement, all authority, right? I mean, that statement should be enough. Jesus said it. So we should believe that he's not lying about that. But there are many other passages that talk about Jesus's authority. So the first is Colossians 1, 15 through 20. 
quote, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So all things, including thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, those things were created for him, and they only hold together in him. And this has been accomplished by the blood of the cross. Another passage in the same book, Colossians chapter 2, just turn over one, one chapter, verses 13 through 15. Here's what it says. And you, who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So, part of the triumph is the cancellation of our debt and the legal demands of God's law. But he also disarmed the rulers and the authorities because now they can't use that against us. Now, of course, I do think that in this passage, we see a focus on spiritual things, right? He disarmed the rulers and authorities. He's not talking about physically disarming them, taking their weapons, but he does talk about disarming them in some sense, right? And we have to be understanding that there is a connection between the spiritual and the physical. The peace that we have with God and that Jesus brings about is a peace that does have physical implications. Just think about the passage of they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. It's a very physical description of what's happening. But that happens because of something that Jesus does. Okay, so what he accomplishes on the cross, a very physical act, a very physical event that had very many spiritual consequences for us and for all of mankind, does result and physical effect, or fruit, fruit of the Spirit. The spiritual fruit that actually is seen and felt and, and heard in the physical world. And we do know that throughout Scripture, there are spiritual authorities that are behind, over, or under physical authorities. And that's why you get some very strange passages such as in Daniel where the archangel Gabriel comes to him and tells him he was wrestling with the prince of Persia and he has to go now and go battle again and there are these spiritual realities behind physical rulers other passages such as in Ezekiel uh, regarding the king of Tyre there's a passage that talks about the king but then there's several passages that seem like they're talking about some spiritual figure behind the king. 
namely Satan. You know, you were perfect in beauty. In the garden, you were there, a guardian cherub. So there's a spiritual connection to the things that are happening in our world. But that's why Jesus is Lord. That's why he reigns even now. Even though he is in heaven, he is reigning over heaven. And all authority has been given to him. So let's move to the next passage. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Okay, so, again, we see that the Father has seated Jesus in the heavenly places. But but where is this? It's above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Again, that similar language of Colossians 1. Above every name that is named. And, he says, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So, this is a both now and not yet. This is already true. And it will continue to be true and will be more true as time goes on, both now and not yet. And all things are under his feet. So there's not a thing, in some sense, nothing is not under his feet. Okay, now someone might say, well, there are people who aren't believers. Yes, certainly, of course. There's that already but not yet. They are not yet under his feet, but they are in some sense, and we'll get to that when we talk about the kingdom of God here shortly. Okay, so the next passage is 1 Peter chapter 3. Kind of a short passage I want to read to you, verses 21 through 22. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So that's kind of a, just a reiteration, if you will, of what Paul said in Ephesians. So both Peter and Paul are saying the same thing about all these authorities being under his feet. Now, what does that mean? And this gets us to the concept of the kingdom of God. So the first thing to say is that Jesus is king. And what does that mean? It means that he has something to say about every area of life. The king has a kingdom, the king has a people, the king has a land, and the king has a law. We read this as a fulfillment of prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. Very well-known passage, right? Here's what it says. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. 
on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it, with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So that one, that passage, it's not just a futuristic passage. There's too much in it that's happening right now, right? It's, it's again, it's both already and not yet, this age and the age to come. A child is born, that's already happened. A son is given, the government is upon his shoulder. His name shall be called. Well, Jesus' name is currently being called those things. He is those things. Now, that's going to increase as time goes on, and he certainly will be called those things in the final judgment when he comes back. But he is those things now. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Okay, so again, there's this concept of growth, of increase, of, of just getting bigger and more, increasing government. Now, what does that mean? That increasing government is an increase in scope and size. So that includes every area of life and every location. So it's, 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 it's with how far it goes and how deep it goes. So for example, as a Christian, I would say that Jesus is my Lord. He governs every area of my life. But that is always increasing because there are some areas of my life that have taken longer time to be given to him, that I've kept for myself, that I've engaged in sin. And when I was a younger Christian, there were definitely areas I did not want Jesus to touch in my life. But as I grew and as I become more mature and as he continues to sanctify me, he is renovating or he is increasing his government over every area of my life. And that's one way that happens. But it also, so that's kind of a depth, if you will, the depth of government, how much we give to him. But his government also increases in every location. So as more and more people are becoming Christian, his government is increasing and having an impact over every area of life, from science to law to economics to art, music, reading and writing, and all kinds of all kinds of things, parenting, right? And when Jesus ascended in heaven, there weren't that many Christians. I mean, there were the eleven disciples and and probably a, a handful of others that truly believed in Jesus, but one would say that his government was not very big. It wasn't that deep and it wasn't that broad. Certainly it wasn't that broad because there were not that many Christians, but it wasn't that deep also because the disciples themselves still grew in their faith. I mean, again, even Peter, one of the chief disciples, was corrected later on by Paul for the way he was um, treating the Gentiles when the Jews were there in the book of Galatians. So the point is that the government's increasing. And we as Christians, when we go to evangelize, we are not making Jesus king. We're not calling on people to make him king. We are recognizing that he already is king. And we're calling on all people to submit to the king. See, they are rebels. They're on the king's property. The whole world belongs to Jesus. And the king is going to come and claim what is his and judge them because they've burnt his castle, they've killed his servants, and they are rebelling against him. They think that they are the authority, but they're not. 
and the king offers mercy. So while he has not yet come back, he offers mercy to them. They can either live as full citizens of the kingdom, or they can die as rebels after judgment. So this kingdom of God is in the world, but it's not of the world. It's already and it's not yet. So it's in the world because it does actually exist. It's not just some kind of mystical kingdom in the clouds, okay? It already does exist. It's in the world. It's not of the world because it wasn't made the typical way that kingdoms are made, through brute force, okay, through the bearing of the sword. The kingdom of God has come already in Jesus Christ. That's Luke chapter 11, verses 14 through 23, because in that passage, I'll just read this right here, Jesus is casting out demons, and the Pharisees are not happy about it. So here's what it says. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, He casts out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebub. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. So here, who is he talking about? Well, the whole context is Jesus and Beelzebub, or, or Satan. And Jesus is saying that he is casting out demons, all right? And he's doing it by the power of God, the finger of God. And he's using a rhetorical question to them. You know, if, if it is by God's power that I'm doing this, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And it's true, it has. Jesus is there. He's the king. The kingdom of God has come and is amongst them. And then he goes on to describe the armed, the armed man, the strong man and his palace. And that's really Satan. And Jesus is the one who's stronger, attacking him, overpowering him, binding him, stripping him of his armor, and taking his stuff. Basically, everything that belongs to Satan, which includes sinners who are enslaved to sin. Yes, yes. But also, if you recall, in the temptation of Jesus, Satan tells him that all the kingdoms and their glory and their power belong to him, and that he gives them to whoever he wants. And he tells Jesus that he will give him those kingdoms if Jesus just bows down. Now, how can Satan say that they're his? Because he stole them. And an argument can be made that, I think this is a fair argument, that when Adam rebelled against God in the garden, when Adam chose to obey Satan and rebel against God, in effect, he handed things over to Satan. Satan had tricked and usurped the throne. He had enslaved Adam to sin, and Adam, in that sense, belonged to Satan and needed to be set free. 
So the world belongs to God, of course, because he made it. But Satan, the usurper, took it through his treachery, deceit, and wickedness. And Jesus takes it back. And so the kingdom of God is amidst us or amongst us, right? We see this again. Jesus says this in Luke 17, 21, when he says, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. He's talking to the Pharisees at that time, because they ask him when the kingdom of God is going to arrive. They're thinking of this purely physical, militaristic, conquering kingdom. And their concept is slightly off about that. The kingdom is in the midst of them. So how does one enter the kingdom? Well, that's John chapter 3, where Jesus, talking to Nicodemus, says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then he goes on to say, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So it is, it is related to new birth. It's tied to salvation. Its citizenship is by birth. You're actually natural-born citizens of the kingdom of God. Well, not natural, supernatural. It is new birth in Christ. The power of the Holy Spirit regenerating dead sinners into living saints. And it's that new birth that causes one to enter the kingdom as a citizen. And we see another aspect of this in Colossians 1, where Paul says that he, God, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So, this transfer took place. We were under the domain of darkness, Satan's domain, and now we've been transferred to the kingdom of the Son. And again, that's through forgiveness and redemption. So, this kingdom, though, what's it like? What's it doing? Well, it's expanding, okay? We see this in several parables. Matthew chapter 13 has two of them. In 1331, we have the parable of the mustard seed, right? The kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. Now, that imagery right there is quite similar to the book of Daniel and Daniel's dream. When he dreams about Nebuchadnezzar getting humbled for seven years and losing his mind, the dream is of a tree where all the birds are nesting in the branches. And Daniel says to King Nebuchadnezzar, that's you. You are the king You are the kingdom, and all the people, all the birds, all the other rulers, they come and they nest in your branches, but it's going to get chopped down, right? So the imagery of trees and branches and birds is a a kingdom, ruling, authority, power kind of imagery. And Jesus applies that to the mustard tree in the kingdom of God where all the birds of the air come and make nests in the branches. But then he goes to the next parable, which is the little leaven. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. So it takes time. It spreads throughout all the flour. Eventually, it becomes leavened. 
And again, go back to Daniel chapter 2, where we have a different dream, the earlier dream, about the statue of all the kingdoms, the Babylonians, Persians, Greeks, Romans. And what does it say? Daniel is given a prophecy about a stone, a small stone, that's not made by human hands, that will strike the statue at its feet, at its base, and shatter it into a thousand pieces. And then this stone will grow into a mountain that will fill the whole earth. And Daniel refers to that as the kingdom of God, a heavenly kingdom that cannot be shaken. And so that is the picture of this already not yet kingdom increasing, of the increase of his government. There will be no end. So we've seen how to enter the kingdom. We've seen where the kingdom is. We've seen what it's, what it's like and how it grows. But what about... What's, what's it all about? What happens in the kingdom? What are we doing in the kingdom? How is it spread, right? Well, it's not spread by physical violence. It's spread by proclaiming, teaching, and preaching. And we see this several times in the book of Acts, chapter 28, verses 23 through 31, where it says, When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God, and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. So there's Paul trying to convince people about the kingdom of God and that Jesus is that king. And then we also have, again, more And at the end of that section. In verse 30 and 31, it says, He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. That is the very last verse of the book of Acts. It ends with the proclamation of the kingdom of God in the teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ. That's not an accident that that's the end of the book of Acts. That's very powerful. So the point is, is that the kingdom is already, it is where Christ's will is actively being done in this world. It's not a matter of eating and drinking. It's of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Spirit. And the unrighteous do not enter it, as we see all throughout Scripture. Do you not know? This and this and this will not enter the kingdom of God, right? It's a spiritual entrance through faith by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. It's already, so it's where Christ's will is actively being done, where God's people obey their king and where the fruit of the Spirit is present. But it's also not yet. It's where rebels have not yet surrendered where they are actively disobeying, and where repentance and reformation is still needed. So there's still work to be done, but that's still under the authority of Jesus. The whole world belongs to him. Over there is just a bunch of rebels playing, they're playing king for a day, but they're not the king. They don't have a claim on the land. That belongs to Jesus. That's not another nation that's outside of of Jesus's kingdom, because if that was the case, he would have no authority over them just like we have no authority over other nations. So it's already and it's not yet. So where is it? Where is the kingdom of God seen today? It's seen where a husband loves his wife sacrificially on a daily basis. It's seen where a wife respects her husband and submits to him as God requires in Scripture. It's seen where a Christian business owner acts justly towards his customers and his workers. It's seen where godly workers provide honest labor. It's seen where Christian teachers provide instruction, knowing that Christ is Lord over everything, mathematics, science, 
literature, history. It's seen where pastors preach and teach the word faithfully. And it's seen where governors and kings make good laws and punish evil. And that's where theonomy comes into play. Everyone is fine with that list until we get to that last point. Wait, what? Governors and kings make just laws and punish evil? No, that's theonomy. You can't have that. That's trying to spread the kingdom by the sword. No, no, it's not. That's just the fruit of the Spirit. That's people living and keeping with repentance because they've been converted. And that's what we want, right? We know that wicked rulers are not going to make good laws. And maybe they will by happenstance, right? By chance. If they do, it's by the grace of God. But we want rulers to become Christians. We pray for kings and all who are in authority, right? We want them to be believers. And then, what are they going to do? We want them to live that out in how they exercise authority. So, we're going to get into more details on that next time as we cover part three. So, thank you again for tuning in. I hope that this was useful to you. And I encourage you to think on these things. Think on the kingdom. Think on what it means for Jesus to be king. And I hope that you will join me again next time as we continue looking at the concept of theonomy. Until then, take care and God bless you.